Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we have a special guest with us uh, today. I, I would say she's in studio, but we're actually all Skyping in. But we, we can pretend that she's in studio with us today. Uh, we have Kelly Goldsmith, who's an associate professor of marketing at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Kelly got her PhD in marketing from Yale University and, and spent some time teaching at Northwestern before she went to Vanderbilt. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, welcome, Kelly. How are you? I'm delighted to be chatting with you both. I'm doing great. Let's continue our conversation about Nashville because that's much more much more exciting, I think, because <laughs> Nashville is such a great place. Nashville is amazing. This is where I moved here in August. Everyone listening should uproot themselves and move here immediately. Uh, it's great. The weather's great. The people are nice. It's it's a lovely city. There's lots of delicious food. Now, I understand you've taken up singing country since you've been there. So we're going to pause here so you can serenade us a little bit. <laughs> I, I am fine with that. I left my guitar at home, unfortunately, but I can be a cappella. Yeah, it's mandatory when you come and try to register with a driver's license. They make you sing a few bars. So I'm working on it. <laughs> I can imagine the realtors turning around and saying, how well can you sing? Because you can't live here unless you can sing. No, and dream on about getting your kids into preschool. I mean, you know, they better step yeah. it up to step it up as it were. Yes. Uh, luckily, if you have enough sequins, you can overcome the uh, the singing requirement. Blue eyeshadow, I'm finding, also goes a long way, so I'm making it work. <laughs> we admire your ability to blend in, Kelly. I do what I can. So we've invited Kelly on to talk about um, a topic that's gotten a, a lot of research over the years, but has um, kind of turned in some interesting directions more recently. Uh, we're going to talk about scarcity, uh, specifically scarcity and, and what scarcity does to customers, uh, the way that they approach things, the way that they act. So maybe we could start off, Kelly. I don't know if you've got like a favorite bit of scarcity research or if you want to maybe just define the topic broadly for us before we dive into some of the specifics. Well, I can I can define the topic broadly, but if we want to stay like strictly housed within the world of the consumer, there's lots of different ways in which consumers experience scarcity or what we you know, basically they don't physically have to have something that is scarce in order to experience scarcity in their day to day bumbling through stores and purchasing things and whatnot. So, for example, you can imagine lots of marketing tactics are actually scarcity marketing tactics, even though they're never described that way to the consumer. So, for example, all of us every day, you've probably already seen one today, right? There's limited time to buy offers. There's limited quantity offers where they get you feeling like you're competing with other consumers for the remaining goods, et cetera, et cetera. And these scarcity marketing tactics are really a main say of the customer's toolkit. And even above and beyond those marketing tactics that are used in promotions, right? You get to the store and if there's physically not enough of a given product on the shelf, that's also scarcity, which people can experience for different reasons in different ways. There can be what's called variety scarcity when you just happen to be in a market that never gets a sufficient amount of variety of a given product category and you feel that's a form of scarcity that you experience. So again, just even strictly within the consumer realm, on a given day, there's lots of different ways in which you could experience scarcity. And in our research, what we've done is try to broaden even beyond that 
because as we bumble through our days as consumers, it's not just about the products. It's not just about how they're promoted. We experience scarcity in other ways that are relevant to the consumer experience. For example, you go to pay, you open your wallet, there is not enough money in your wallet, or you go to use your credit card and you start thinking, you know, crap, I've had a lot of expenses this month and how am I going to make the bills work out? So there's money scarcity. There's scarcity of time, which I think regardless of your socioeconomic status, we all experience scarcity of time at an increasing clip these days with, you know, the internet and increased sort of access to us by those we work with, et cetera, increased demands on our time. So scarcity of time, scarcity of money also affects consumer decision making. And then, I mean, at a more macro level, right, you take an even bigger step back. You can just think about the messaging we're bombarded with in the media these days, right? So the world is running out of resources. The world is running out of corn. The world is running out of certain commodities. There's always scarcity of gas is intermittent, right? Scarcity of money. There's broader scarcity of money like economic recessions, et cetera. So from the macro, the very macro level to the very micro level, consumers, my, my point is consumers routinely experience scarcity in its different forms. And I think for that reason, Myself and the other researchers I work with thought it was important to take a big step back and say, hey, what are all of these experiences of scarcity doing to us as consumers? So is there a, so is there a kind of a headline finding like scarcity causes people to do X or is it more nuanced than that? It's, it's going to be more nuanced than that. I think there's different researchers study it in different ways. For example, some people just study financial deprivation, right, which is a form of scarcity. And for example, you feel like you're financially deprived. One of the findings by Sharma and colleagues of the literature is you're going to be more likely to cheat to get ahead, right? One thing that we find that's a related finding that's more purely in like the cognitive activation of the concept of scarcity domain is that when people feel like they're competing for the best, they have this what's called a maximizing mindset. They're really focused on getting that number one option. They feel like there's not enough stuff to go around. So they get a general sense of scarcity. And that also makes them more likely to become unethical to get ahead, right? So there's findings that scarcity can make you unethical. There's certainly findings that scarcity can make you selfish. But what I think lends the level of nuance is it's important to take a step back and look at this from across a broader swath of literatures because, you know, anthropologists have studied scarcity, biologists, um, you know, evolutionary psychologists, all kinds of people. And they have findings, too, that, you know, people that are in the lowest socioeconomic group or the lowest social class actually give a higher percentage of their income to charity than people in the highest socioeconomic group, which says, well, hey, but then maybe scarcity can make you more generous. That suggests moderators as to when can scarcity make you more generous versus more selfish, et cetera. So those are the type of interesting questions that I think researchers are exploring today. So does, if you have, um, if something is scarce, then you obviously tend to put a higher value on it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I was sitting as I was sort of thinking about this today. Uh, is there any case where scarcity where people don't put a high value on it? I think that's a really interesting and and pretty much an open question. And it's one I've gotten from reviewers with my own research, because one thing like the, they asked the question of the scarcity value heuristic, like as something becomes more limited, it almost always becomes more valuable. But then reviewers say, well, you know, if you're allergic to chocolate and you learn that the world is running out of chocolate, are you really going to pay more for chocolate? And my short answer would be, I think you would, right? Because you could sell it or something, right? Like, I think there's a general understanding that things that are limited in quantity are generally more valuable and people are more attracted to them. So I think that's pretty pervasive. And that's why you see marketers it, leveraging it so much. The Intuitive Customer Podcast is brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Since 2002, Beyond Philosophy has been helping organizations improve their customer experience through their consulting, training, and research services. 
Find out more at beyondphilosophy.com. That's beyondphilosophy.com. So I was trying to think of some products, and I was trying to think of some products that 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 maybe are not very good products, and the fact that they become scarce become doesn't that become an irrelevance? So, so in actually, other words, because they're not, you know, be, so I guess what I'm challenging is, is there something else happening there? Do they need to be worthwhile in some way? And excuse well, my naive language, but um, Ryan would have told you and you would have listened on these podcasts. That's what I do. <laughs> I I love your I, I'm a fan of this podcast, so I'm just honored to be able to talk to you guys and, and hear your voices uh, real time. Na- I naivete say, expressed in a British accent is still charming. It is. It, it sounds very <laughs> smart. Fine. It sounds I, I think you sound like a genius um, just by virtue of the accent. So, OK, <laughs> but scarcity and the scarcity value heuristic, an important uh, qualifier that can be applied is why this product is scarce. And Colin, I think you're touching on this point. So, for example, there's supply side scarcity and there's demand side scarcity. If Louis Vuitton introduces a limited edition collection of wallets that has these beautiful artistic things on them that are created by some, you know, special world changing yeah. artist, you know, that's supply side scarcity. They don't make a lot of those. Right. And people put a high premium on those. There's also demand side scarcity that everybody bought it and everybody has it. And therefore, that's why it's scarce. There's times when people don't want what everybody has. Right. There's times when people do, but there's times when people don't want what everybody has, like when people want to be self-expressive, right, when they want to appear original, when they want to have that elite scarcity status. So there's times when demand side scarcity can make a product less attractive. So that's an important qualifier to that kind of classic finding that scarcity increases value. Right. So if you've had and I was discussing this with a client um, only the other day, actually, if you've had a product that effectively isn't scarce and you've actually been trying to sort of sell to many segments of the market, can you then make it scarce? I mean, you know, and, and I know that you can obviously put, you know, um, limited time offer and all mm-hmm. that, that type of thing. But I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to address more of the, the product in that, in that situation. Does that make sense? So actually like limit availability? Well, I the limit availability. So the debate I was having with a client was, okay, well, if we need to look at segmentation, and that's a different, different whole different argument, obviously. Uh, but if we need to look at segmentation, you know, is there an argument of positioning your product as being more premium or, or mm-hmm. scarce? Oh yeah. Um, so therefore, people are. But I guess my question is, if it hasn't been scarce before. Can you make it scarce? Does does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that question is just like anything else that with the right amount of advertising and if you're backing up your positioning with actual like benefits, right? If it is a high quality product that you can people could actually believe would be scarce because there's some attributes about it that would be high in demand or whatever the case may be. I think you could get away with it, but it's a longer term strategy with respect to, again, you've got to build that positioning in the mind of consumers and convince people that this thing that used to be mainstream is now scarce. But it seems like we should be able to think of times when companies have successfully done that because with respect to segmentation, that's that's not an uncommon strategy. If you're kind of the, like FedEx is the one I'm thinking of, though they didn't employ a scarcity strategy, but they were like the only supplier with respect to overnight shipping. Then they get all these new entrants into the market that are doing overnight shipping and FedEx, what do they do? 
well, they could have dropped their prices, but then again, that lowers perceived value. So what do they do? They instead raise their prices, right? And they have like the next day. So they offered next morning, which no one was offering next morning, right? And they remain successful and they sort of retain their their brand equity that way. And there's lots of times when companies, when when they go low, you go high, um, which is kind of related to what you're saying. I think it's it's doable, but just like anything else, when you're changing perceptions of the mind of the consumer for a product that's already in market, it's just a longer strategy. I think I guess it also... Sorry, go on. Go on, uh, so Disney, um, you know, back when people were mostly buying DVDs and videos instead of uh, streaming, uh, you know, Disney would sell a lot of DVDs and videos of, of all of their animated movies. And at one point, they they deliberately withdrew most of the movies from the market, mm-hmm. and they had uh, what they called the Disney Vault. They even like branded right. it. They had little cartoon pictures of a vault door in the shape of the well, of the Mickey Mouse head with the ears. Uh, and they would say, you know, this, this movie is going to go into the Disney vault. So you've got this limited time to buy it. You need mm-hmm. to buy whatever Pocahontas right. before December. Otherwise, it's going in the vault for 12 years and you won't be able to find it anywhere. And, and that so, worked. Oh, it worked like crazy because, you know, you know, you have this newborn kid who's not old enough to appreciate Snow White. Mm-hmm. But if you don't buy the video right now then by the time it's available again, it'll be too late for your child and they will have mm-hmm. turned into a monster, uh, this juvenile delinquent, all because you didn't buy Snow White when you could Clearly. have. Clearly. Uh, I, so I, yeah, would I, just I, like, I would just like to add that I've got all of the Disney movies now based upon that, that are yes. on DVD, that are, I'm welcome to sell to somebody if they want we them. All do. Don't sell them, Colin. You have a grandchild now. <laughs> Think of the grandchild. You don't want that child turning into a monster. I Good just point. need to get a DVD again. That's right. You need to go back and buy the, buy the old technology. You're well, another, another favorite example of mine. So there's Disney and then there's, of course, McDonald's, right? The McRib sandwich, which was, co- which was available, which was on the menu all the time. But then all of a sudden, McDonald's was like, you know what? Just kidding. We're going to roll this out every now and again as a promotion. And it went from being something on the menu that wasn't getting that much attention to something people went crazy for just because it wasn't available all the time. And it's still the same kind of crappy sandwich, right? It's so terrible. that's a good yeah, but but I mean, yet for the I record, McDonald's, if you're listening, it's terrible. Yeah, but, but no, McDonald's. I say good for you because I would run out and buy that McRib right now, even if it is terrible, just because I feel oh, it's McRib season. Like I right. don't want to miss out. Good for them, and they also give me a good example to talk about in class. So keep it crappy, McDonald's. <laughs> is there anything then where, and again, Ryan always talks about the fact that it's never sort of anything black and white here. But is there any loss aversion and things like that playing into that as well? Uh, and I, you yeah. know, so, social proofing where you know everybody's buying it, so you've got to buy it as well, and stuff like that. I presume that's all playing in. I think that can play into it. The social proof piece is interesting because it it can work one way or the opposite, right? Like basically yeah. you could want something because it's in high demand and everyone has one. So you have to have run or the opposite, right? You don't want one because that's what everybody has and you want something that's unique. Therefore you go for the really scarce thing that's scarce based on supply side scarcity. So that, that could definitely work either way. I think loss aversion is a huge part of why these general effects related to scarcity operate. So our definition of scarcity, we had a review paper that it's actually coming out on this, this summer. And our definition that we have is that resource scarcity involves sensing or observing a discrepancy between one's current level of resources and a higher and more desirable reference point. And if you take a step back, what that really is saying is scarcity is loss of, like, is being in the domain of losses, right? So like when you're experiencing scarcity, you're not where you want to be with respect to a given resource with money, time, availability of a product, whatever it is, you don't have what you want. And we find it kicks off a bunch of these like psychological effects. One being that in the research we've done, 
And like I said, people have come at it from all kinds of different perspectives. But in the research we've done, scarcity makes people more competitive. And there's research that we that's kind of built on our research that we didn't do ourselves that actually shows when you show people scarcity marketing tactics, so advertisements for limited quantity, limited time to buy, et cetera, and then you give them the opportunity to play violent uh video games where they're playing against other people they're actually more violent in the video games and show more aggression towards other people and they did a cool study where they measured aggression towards a vending machine that didn't give you the candy bar you paid for and looked at how much they kicked the vending machine etc cetera, etc cetera. and people are just violently abusing the vending machine that had been exposed to these scarcity marketing promotions so mm-hmm. i think there's there's really something to that that when you feel like you're in the domain of losses when you're just not where you want to be with respect to your reference point it does make you more competitive with others because you get this sense that there's a limited pie and and you've got to get yours first. Um, now, so what's inter- go ahead. That, sorry. That's part of the so that's part of then like the Black Friday sale when you see mm-hmm. people hurtling through the doors and have been sitting there for 14, 14 hours to get the, the one television and they'll you know kill their grandmother to to get it basically. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And like it sounds it sounds a little bit silly, but I think it's real. Like I think that this notion that. Scarcity, it almost licenses you to behave in a more competitive way that social pressures might tamp down if we were just walking through life. But all of a sudden you hear something's limited and you get this kind of primal instinct that it's okay to elbow people out of the way to get it, which is explains a lot of that Black Friday behavior. And it also explains in the lab, we we did the scarcity priming stuff where you kind of expose people to words related to scarcity or have them write about a time they experienced scarcity. And then we had them move on to playing these unrelated economic games like the dictator game, the ultimatum game, etc. And just Generally, what we found was when the context was anonymous, so people weren't going to be exposed for being selfish, people that had been primed with scarcity were much more selfish, like retaining more of the money themselves. They gave less money to charity, all kinds of things than people in a control condition. Uh, Where it becomes interesting is I think people... People who are experiencing scarcity, at least, again, the way we manipulate it, they're they're looking to get theirs, right? They're looking to enhance their competitive fitness. So, in fact, they will be more generous with other people if you highlight the ways in which sharing with other people will actually come back around and benefit them. So it's this form of impure altruism where they're more likely to give if they think giving is going to lead to getting, which I think is interesting. We're so pleased that you're listening to this episode of The Intuitive Customer. As a listener... We want to offer you a free download of Colin's ebook, Unlocking the Hidden Customer Experience. Take advantage of this free offer being made available only to listeners of this podcast. Do it now. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast and follow the link for the free book. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. All fascinating stuff, and we could carry on for the next four hours talking about this. But if you're if you're somebody in marketing... And, you know, what what practical advice would you give them then? How can they, if you've got just a sort of a normal average product and you're selling it and you run the occasional sale and, you know, you do that type of thing, then then great. But what, what else can people do to capitalize on this? One thing that we found that's re- highly relevant to marketers is because people experiencing scarcity have this desire to enhance their competitive fitness, they're significantly more drawn to products that are positioned around the self-benefits that they offer. So, for example, one study we ran it was a two-by-two design where half the people were primed with scarcity, half the people are in a control condition. We then exposed them to either the same product. Everybody sees the same product, which was post-it notes, so about as boring and utilitarian as a product can be. We either highlighted the self benefits that are associated with post-it notes. So literally the tagline for the post-it was post-it notes, the secret weapon for those looking to get ahead. 
versus we had a different condition <laughs> as you as we all know right and we had yeah. a different we had a different condition where it just said post-it notes so there was no self-benefit that was highlighted and then we did an incentive compatible uh, willingness to pay a licitation task where you basically get people trading off between amounts of money and getting a deck of post-it notes people actually got the post-it notes i've got hundreds of decks of post-it notes in my office from this experiment so what we found was people in this it's interesting to me because you could, again, imagine people experiencing scarcity should not be willing to pay more for anything because they should be thinking about scarcity and thinking keeping their money is the best way to address a variety of scarcity-related concerns. But in fact, what we found was people in the scarcity condition were willing to pay significantly more than the control condition for the product, the post-it notes here, that was positioned around the self-improvement-related benefits, right? So the secret mm -hmm. weapon for those looking to get ahead. So if I'm a marketer, and you can, again, there's lots of different ways scarcity can be activated, but if we're living in a, in a recession, if we were to go through a recession again, or, you know, we're general shortages of commodities, or anytime there's these broad macro-level scarcity cues in the environment that are, people are getting hearing about over and over again, how you can position your product is really around the self-improvement related benefits they could offer the individual. So how is this product going to help them get ahead in this time when it's more competitive than ever and resources are dwindling, right? And so I think that's that's a nice takeaway for marketers that they can leverage. I remember during the recession of 2008, 2000, you know, 2007, 2008, there was a lot of discussion about what marketers were going to do. How are you going to get people to buy products when people were so cost sensitive? And this is one possible answer is basically highlighting how the products allow you to stay sort of be your best self. I think it also contributes to why during economic recessions, you actually don't see a downturn in things like self-improvement seminars. You actually see a slight upturn. Because it's not in, in these times when the world is running out of stuff, you have no option but to be your se best self if you want to get your piece of the pie. And I think leveraging that is is vital for marketers in those times. So being your so so actually attaching the benefit personally. So mm -hmm. not just turning around and saying it's 20 percent off and, and that finishes tonight at midnight. Mm -hmm. uh, but saying here is your the the product and here's the benefit that it would provide to you. Is that right? Yeah, what's in it for you? And actually the benefits yeah. specifically that we find get the most traction are self-improvement related benefits. What is right. self-improvement? We define it broadly based, based as improvement on any uh, dimension that's relevant to the self, right? So it could be becoming smarter, becoming more fit, becoming, you know, whatever, again, is relevant to your own personal achievement. People are particularly attuned to that if they're experiencing scarcity and thus a heightened competitive orientation. You can imagine, right? If you just all of a sudden you come into work and you realize there's only, you thought everybody was going to be able to get a raise that year. Actually, it's only going to be one person that gets a raise that year and it's going to be allocated based on merit, right? So now you're competing with all your colleagues. You have to be the best in order to get that one raise. So therefore, you're going to be particularly drawn to products and services, et cetera, that highlight how they allow you to be your best in that context. And, and does that apply to things like values? So I don't know, uh, being environmentally, this will help you be more environmentally conscious and therefore appealing to the values of the individual. I think that is a really deep question. And we have actually been, there's this whole literature on values behavior correspondence. And we had this notion that basically would scarcity actually get you more attracted to things that spoke to your values? It's tough to test because everyone's values are a little bit different. So yeah. we employ this, like, there's this Schwartz battery of value. I think it's got 52 values, and you have people indicate the extent to which they endorse 52 different values. Then you have to match up these, you know, marketing appeals to the different values and see what moves. We've gotten some evidence, but as you can see with, you know, this inventory having 52 different values it's tapping into, it's a complicated problem. Um, and I think it, it requires more testing. What I can say based on the data we have now is there's certain things 
that just generally allow, I call it competitive fitness. There's certain things that generally allow you to be more competitively fit, right? Being smarter, being more athletic, being strong, physically stronger in times when the world is running out of stuff in a very primal way, having advantages in terms of intelligence, speed, strength are almost always good things. And we do see those things generally moving the lever significantly. Um, the extent to which that actually is going to translate into idiosyncratic values is, is something we're still pursuing. I think you could imagine situations where uh, you could win some kind of competition by being the most environmentally friendly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if if various men were competing for the attention of a uh, you know a, an environment a woman who's an environmentalist, then you could see them kind of endorsing those values and wanting to be like the, the best recycler in that yeah. very narrow domain. I 100% that think that would happen if for no other reason than those environmental women get all the guys. I mean, yes. seriously. Um, it's, <laughs> That's what I've been going on with my life then. In terms of I, takeaways I from this podcast that I hope our listeners get, um, <laughs> environmental women get all the guys. Yeah, yeah if nothing yeah. else, recycle just to find a significant other, right? Yeah. <laughs> that That's what's in it for you. So I know we're we're running low on time, but there was one more thing I wanted to kind of get you to to reemphasize in some of your own research and some of the recent research that's been doing on this. Um, Historically, you know, marketers have have thought through scarcity appeals, mostly in the ways that we've talked about already in terms of like actually limiting supply or actually making it hard to get. Um, Some of your research and some of this other stuff has taken more, I don't know, you could even maybe call it a mindset approach. The idea is that without changing the actual availability of stuff, you can get people to think in similar ways as if things are actually in limited quantities. So uh, particularly from a marketer standpoint, like what would be useful for them to think about in terms of ways that people might be thinking with a scarcity mindset, even if there's plenty of things available? That's a, it's a really interesting point. I will say just sort of nuts and bolts wise, when you run these experiments on scarcity, it's really easy in my experience to activate a scarcity mindset because people are so sensitive to having less. And again, I think it goes back to the fact that it's almost this, it's so threatening and it's so primal. If the world is running out of resources and you might not get yours, like you need to secure your base. And so that's why I think the literature has kind of moved to this mindset orientation because these mindsets are pretty easy to trigger practically. And then what that so means if you're a a list of just two or three of the ways that, that you or others have activated this mindset in a research setting. And then maybe we can um, talk about marketing. I have that list. Um, there's like 26 different ways. I can email it to you. Um, so what we've done, you know, we have, there's two manipulations I've relied on pretty heavily. One is just, you have people write about a time they experienced scarcity and that like in the past week, and we run these mainly on undergrads and what they write is quite boring, right? It's like, I ran out of milk and I wanted to have cereal. I ran out of a pen, my pen ran out of ink and I needed to take this test. It's not like people are writing about, you know, I was financially deprived and I was living in a homeless shelter. It's nothing. It's not substantial. It's very low level incidences of daily scarcity, which I think is it's and then you see them have these profound effects on their subsequent decision making. And I think that I like and not all my reviewers agree, but I like the fact that these low level experiences of scarcity trigger such a big response, because mm. to me, if recalling a time you ran out of milk when you needed wanted to have milk on your cereal, you know, if that can then subsequently change your behavior at an economic game or a shared resource game or your willingness to donate to charity. Imagine what would happen if you were actually running out of something that mattered. Right. Yeah. And and there's people that have looked at that, too. So there's people that um, out of University of Chicago, they do these experiences 
experimental games where they rig the game so that you um you don't you feel like you don't have enough guesses in the game like to win versus you feel like you do have enough guesses or you feel like you never have enough time versus you feel like you have sufficient time there's people that do it that way um like I said, there's people that look at financial deprivation, so they mess with like this, the income reporting scale. So you either feel like you're doing great based on the nature of the scale with your average, with your mm-hmm. income, versus you feel like you're doing pretty terrible based on the nature of the scale. And then so that different, different reference points, essentially? Yeah, exactly. So they're shifting their reference point in a way to make you feel. And I mean, just talking about shifting your reference point, another basic manipulation that comes out of that literature, write about a time you write about someone you feel financially worse off than and write about how it made you feel, right? <laughs> That's that they use that manipulation all the time. So social comparison and and then versus write about someone you financially feel financially better off than and write about yeah. how that made you feel. Right. So that's, again, just strictly setting up a reference point and having you highlight if you're above or below it. So marketers then could look for kind of global trends that might make people feel more or less kind of scarcely scarcity minded. You know, you mentioned recessions mm-hmm. um, kind of uh, commodities and, and uh, you know gas prices as those goes up, go up and down. Um, There's that. Anything- Anything that you would advise in terms of like, I don't know, advertising or packaging or anything that might activate a scarcity of mindset? If you wanted to make, well, if it's, it, there's a couple of different things. If you want to, there's basically how to operate knowing that you're going to, you're likely to have consumers who are in a scarcity mindset, which is more of what I've been talking about. But then there's how to activate a scarcity mindset in store. And I think the easiest way to do that in store is really these scarcity market, the, the classic scarcity marketing appeals, right? Don't have it like Meng Zhu out of mm. um, Johns Hopkins. She does these studies where basically you are shopping in a store for yogurt and there's just not enough. There's there's enough yogurt to meet your needs. You're going to buy four. There's four. But there's not like the 200 yogurts you're used to seeing. Right. As uh, us as consumers in the U.S., like there's an abundance of products we're used to seeing in the grocery store. And what's interesting from Meng's research is actually when you change that up and people come into the grocery store and all of a sudden there's not this abundance of products they're used to seeing. It activates a scarcity mindset. People find it terrifying. Right. Because like what's happening in the world that there's not my 200 yogurts to choose from. So, I, I mean, this assumes the retailer wants to activate that kind of mindset. But if they do. Right. Ah, that's one alternative. Well, I I think we're going to close it here just in the interest of time because, you know, otherwise we'll just keep talking, I guess would be the alternative. I would be fine with that indefinitely. I have literally nothing better to do. (laughs) This is the best thing. This is the highlight of my day. This is the best use of time. I agree. And um, Kelly, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're a delight. Thank you, uh, thank you, celebrities, for for allowing me to be part of your excellent podcast. And thank you for the good work you've been doing. I've really, truly enjoyed it. Great. Good. I'm glad glad you enjoyed it. Thanks very much for coming. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right. Bye. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.